0: In this week's episode, we bring in brand safety expert Scott Cunningham. Now, Scott was the founder of the IEB Innovation Tech Lab. He was also the president of Media Group Interactive and a pioneer in developing USAToday.com. So he's a really excellent resource for both brands and publishers. And by the way, you both work together because brands buy advertising on publishers and publishers serve ads to brands. What do we get into? We get into why both parties, publishers and brands, now need to really ramp up their investment in first-party data collection because that's gonna map your actual ad targeting from a brand perspective on those publishers. We also talk about ad fraud. It's been in the industry, it's been an issue for a while, but more specifically why first party data can potentially reduce ad fraud for your brand over time, save you millions of dollars. We also get into the Brand Safety Institute of which uh, Scott is also writing a ton of white papers. In fact, you can learn how to get all of his white papers, um, things that you need to think about from a brand perspective around safety and compliance, especially as you collect first party data. Lastly we touch on CTV, OTT, SSAI, and if you don't even know what those are, you're probably already using them. Your intermediaries or your agencies are buying media for your brand on those channels, and you need to understand what the potential is, what the impact is, and what the future looks like for them. So, let's get started. Welcome to Thinking Caps. Thanks for coming in today, and sorry we are remote because of the coronavirus right now. But I appreciate you coming from the safety of your own home.
1: Yeah, no, thank you, guys.
0: Cool. Well, today uh, I have a lot of things. I just threw away my agenda, but I really wanted to kick off with you because we've been talking about the death of the cookie. Richard and I have been following this, and you know whether it's truly a death or not, it's drastically changing marketers' ability to use third-party data for advertising in the future. You know, we have a two-year runway. Brands have a two-year runway, but Can you give us your perspective in layman's terms? You're an expert, you know, you're at the IAB, like really what is going to happen to the cookie in layman's terms that a brand marketer who's been spending money with their agencies or holding groups, whatever, what does it really mean to them?
1: Well, so the cookie in and of itself is is nothing more than a piece of technology that stored information around third-party data. So what are we really talking about? We're talking about the migration away from transacting on third-party data. Cookie just happens to be the technical means by which this has been described in the past. And so when we think about then the big picture of moving away from third-party data, we have to move somewhere. We have to move in what this migration path looks like into first-party data. And when we think about first-party data, we think about, well, who are the entities in the advertising and marketing supply chain that have first-party relationships? And that's brand marketers and publishers. Everybody else in the middle of that is an intermediary from big agency holding companies to supply side tech platforms to data management platforms, right? These are all intermediaries without a relationship to an end consumer. So those entities, brand marketers and publishers that have first party relationships really do over the next two years stand to be able to leverage any element of advertising uh, transaction whether it's through programmatic channels automated channels private marketplaces direct type deals Um, obviously there's a a large portion of of regulatory compliance that we can we we will talk about here a little bit but On this migration path over the next one to two years away from third-party data, it does fundamentally change what entities are transacting on in the supply chain back to first-party information. When I mean first-party information, I really do mean those entities that do have that relationship with the end user.
0: They own it. They actually have a one-to-one relationship. So what you're saying is publishers have a one-to-one, right? People who have subscribed, even if they lightly subscribe, or if they're behind a paywall and then brand marketers who have gone directly to consumers and said, Hey, you know, forget Facebook, forget Google. You want to have a relationship directly with us. I'm Nike, I'm Adidas, I'm whomever. Um, That's the kind of first party day that you're saying.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And and when you think about it in terms of the worldwide web, I want to be careful The the worldwide web different from apps, different from CTV, even though we can still talk about first-party data across that, but when we talk about the death of the cookie, we are talking about the World Wide Web and those publishers and brand marketers that do business on the World Wide Web. And what that really does mean is when Google made these announcements, That there's a 24 month window. Google is one of the last uh, browsers to allow transactions of third party data. What they've effectively done is announced that those are end of days. So they're sunsetting that type of capability.
0: Got it. You know, we we talked a little earlier before we started. Do we want to talk about what publishers are doing because of this change? You know, they're taking down paywalls, but still collecting data. You know, how are the publishers? Um, And I think it's interesting for brand marketers to know. How are the places where you're going to have to buy and target your media in the future? How are they dealing with this shift?
1: Well, the shift uh, on, on publishers when, when we talk about the paywall, that's, that is uh, what's happening uh, in current times, especially the coronavirus. And, and we'll, we'll, I'll talk to you a little bit about why that's really important for news publishers. But when it comes to either paywalls, registration walls, uh, email newsletter opt-ins, and when I say opt-in, it's because keep in mind our industry had been um, at transacting on elements of, of third-party information that was more opt-out mechanisms. Now we're moving towards a world of opt-in through GDPR and CCPA, kind of lighting the path on that from a regulatory perspective, so that when publishers do Uh, introduce some sort of piece of content. They want to be able to capture that first party information through a registration system. It could be a subscription system. It could be newsletter system. They are effectively capturing even more of that first party information, allowing that consumer to consent, to opt in to allow advertising transactions along the way too. Whereas brand marketers, very similar, which is interesting because brand marketers um, with this shift, uh, have a depending on the brand, I suppose, because not all brand marketers capture consumer information like this. But depending on the brand, especially the direct-to-consumer brand, um, capturing of that first-party information is really critical for them right now, too, in the next 12 months. Because as you think about how they want to market to those consumers or future consumers, they want to be able to match that first-party information, whether it be the World Wide Web mobile or CTV uh, in such an effective way that if they're not thinking about how to um, transact with that first party information and capture that first party information now, they'll be behind the curve.
2: It's, it's quite interesting actually seeing the shift in, in terms of what it means for publishers, because I actually generally think there's a real opportunity here for for publishers. And um, you know, we've been beating the drum for eight, ooh, eight nine years now. Um, with the duopoly uh, of Google and Facebook you know, increasingly tying up uh, such a large proportion of digital ad revenues, we've been uh, working with a whole plethora of different uh, media companies uh, to help them offer things that Facebook and Google can't. And primarily, the thing that we've been working with them to offer to consumers is interactive experiences that offer a value exchange to the consumer in return for their uh, data first party data zero party data and then that is shared to the advert- you know with the advertiser uh, and the uh, publisher and actually to put some some um, you know and, and actually funny enough interestingly enough the, the brands that we talk to one of the big issues that they feel they have with this shift away from third party data to first party data is there a concern of like course, how does this new world scale you know how do i collect this amount of first party data and actually, what we do with publishers by offering cheater experiences out almost as a, as a sort of uh, advertising off, uh, offering for quizzes, sweepstakes, surveys—you know, various other interactive experiences that collect first and zero-party data—is we allow the brand through the publisher's audience to achieve scale. And uh, we actually just did in uh, January. We had our uh, just seeing the numbers on the platform the largest ever month that we did. So we actually collected over half a billion uh, people coming through our experiences, you know, filling out a form and, uh, you know, adding their marketing opt-ins. And the majority of that came from publishers doing it for advertisers. So there is a real opportunity there, I think, for publishers to help brands navigate this shift.
1: You know, it's interesting you bring that up because, um, you know, obviously when I joined the IAB, the IAB board asked me to step in and stand these things up. I had to represent the advertising supply chain um, equally across the, the member entities. So that, that really did mean uh, everybody from the New York Times to the duopoly. And, and so I have, you know, in, in that respect, in that type of role, um, I, you know, you don't play favorites in, in that type of role. Having said that, I come from the traditional news publishing world prior to that. And I spent most of my career in the news publishing world. And what I find interesting about your statement here is, is that news publishers have been getting their teeth kicked in for the last 10 years, uh, by and large. And, and so some of, the, some of them have been successful, but very few, especially local news publishers. And they do need help extracting that first party information. So anytime a brand marketer can come to uh, a, a law, a, a large element of local news publishers or any other publisher that doesn't have the sophistication to maybe capture all of this, but do it at scale, I think you'll find that the health of that type of advertising, and first party data sharing relationship is going to be uh, a good conduit for sustainability for a lot of what we're seeing uh, over the last five, six years. Now, will it Replace a duopoly in terms of scale? No, but I actually think that it actually does shed a well-lit light for brand marketers to know what brand suitability and what brand safety will mean when working with those local publishers versus working with the duopoly type of entity that doesn't allow third party measurement. It doesn't allow uh, transparency to the degree that the brand marketers are looking for. Whereas right now, I think over the next 12 to 24 months, they have an opportunity to work together with a lot of the smaller or medium sized publishers across the world. Web. I think they will find scale. It's going to take some time and some patience to develop those relationships, frankly, develop relationships that they had 10 years ago that were disintermediated.
2: Thinking about the ability to do this at scale, um, you know, one of our, I'll give a bit of a shout out to one of our customers, Discovery Communications. They do a range of different interactive experiences that they work with advertisers on. And one of those experiences they do is the the great home giveaway. Right. So it's a it's a huge sweepstake, but one where. They ask like 25 different questions from consumers about a whole variety of different data points as relevant for anybody um, uh, in a variety of different uh, advertising industries. They'll collect out of that 300 million entries in six to nine uh, weeks. So when you go to a publisher and a publisher offers you a first party data collecting experience that they then promote across TV, mobile, web. These guys have the scale to collect an inordinate amount of first-party data on behalf of their uh, their advertisers, which puts them, I believe, in uh, direct uh, opposition to the Wall Gardens that don't share any data and don't have the well. ad formats that work at work to collect data in any scale. So. I-
0: Good point. Good point. It's a value add. That's where the brands should be going, where they can actually collect data. But Scott, let's put your media hat back on. Let's, let's roll back. Let's say you're, you're head of New York times right now. Are you giving away your secret sauce and, and your real differentiation when you're giving all of your brand advertisers, this direct to consumer content? So, so. What I mean is, if the New York Times is amassing, they've got twenty advertisers, they've got these experiences, whatever they are, collecting data. Oh, here you go, PNG. Here you go, Clorox. Here you go, everyone else. Here's your data. Are they giving away their their real core value so that that brand can take it to another publisher and do a one to one match? Like, what what would you be thinking from a publisher standpoint?
1: From a publisher's perspective, I think over the last ten years, this is where we ran into problem, right? And so, it, even when I was head of Media News Group. When we started placing things like the mail tags uh, in our ad server, uh, we saw tremendous data leakage. We lost that that ownership of that data in a third-party way and from the third-party perspective. This is changing now. And so if I'm a publisher today, I have to understand what the brand marketers are looking for, which is my first-party data. And I am going to be very careful to uh, operate in such a way that we're striking partnership deals where the derivative rights to the access of that first party data are such that it's equitable for both parties. Um, This is the time for publishers to understand that they do hold the cards when it comes to these, these conversations, but that doesn't mean they should shut off the brand marketers. I have no doubt that there's a lot of conversation, negotiation happening with the bigger publishing entities with the brand marketers that I would like to see cascaded to the medium and small publishers on best practices of how to do this. I think there's a lot of richness in first-party data that both brand marketers and publishers can find. Right now, it's about striking that balance over the next 12 months in the contract negotiations of of who's going to own what. I don't think the publishers should just unveil all the first-party data to a brand marketer because they've had these types of placements. At the same time, I have no doubt that there's probably different opportunities to share and stitch uh, that type of first-party data relationship based on the CRM, and or other types of data sources the publisher has. But in the, in the use case that you just described as well, where the brand marketer can have, you know, a survey or something built into the publisher website, you know, what does that mean? Is there a percentage of page views or audiences that they'll be exposed to to capture that first party information? I don't think anybody has the right answer right now, but this is the exciting time to start having those conversations because I think it really redoes a lot of the business negotiation.
0: And it also, it brings up where you're an expert, it brings in compliance, right? Right now, we don't know what impending legislation is going to look like. We just know it's coming. Federal is coming. States are growing their own. So in that transaction, whether there's two opt-in boxes, right? Oh, you're opting into the New York Times, let's say, and Brand X, that's the advertiser behind it. So you know, brands and publishers both need to get their compliance game going, their terms of use, their privacy policies, all the things that the consumer is actually adhering to in these explicit opt-ins. So um, that's a place where brand safety, uh, compliance. It's going to be huge. People like you should be really busy for a long time.
1: It's interesting because compliance is, is, you know if you're a lawyer, which I'm not a lawyer, but lawyers look at a lot of times compliance as far as this is what the law states and therefore this is what we have to do. And entrepreneurs and uh, strategic business executives and technologists such as myself, uh, we look at it and say, okay, well, what's the appropriate packaging here? Because there's one way to say compliance is kind of this binary black and white way of looking at things. Then there's the to, say, to say that, okay, what's the user experience around this that makes the consumer feel comfortable to want to opt into that type of world and that type of transaction? And I think right now this is where uh, some of the confusion in the market is, but also some of the opportunity. Because I do think that user experience and that consumer experience window of what that opt-in looks like and articulation to the consumer why this is really important. For example, if I'm a publisher, I might say, hey, you know, this site is free. It's supported by advertising with these six brands. We opt in to receive these ad, you know, ads from these brands, whether they're, you know, we're going to share data with the brands. Some publishers might say, you know what? These brands are here. We're not going to share all this first-party information with them. I, I don't know what the right mix is. I've seen it both ways. But I think the consumer experience around this to meet those compliance and regulatory objectives is interesting. Well, the challenge right now, though, is clearly, and this is where the trade bodies and Privacy for America stepped in at clearly and said that CCPA, Maryland, Washington, these state regulatory bodies, which really, when you think about it, these state regulatory bodies are going after something because Washington's not doing anything and the state AGs really want to be empowered to sue is really what it comes to in in order to protect the, the, the consumer. This is how fragmentation is happening and that actually puts the burden on small, medium-sized businesses, which you think about when I say small, medium-sized businesses, I think those who advertise and those who publish content are also small, medium-sized businesses. And they're gonna have a hard time, they are having a hard time meeting the fragmented compliancy uh, objectives um, in the US, let alone, we haven't even talked about Europe, if they have customers coming from Europe, whole nother conversation, right? So that is a problem that we gotta get through and hopefully, um, the, U- the United States government will actually come through in the next 24 months with a federal policy to to make it really clear. This is what small, medium-sized and large businesses need to uh, conform to, but right now it's kind of hard to conform with those user experience and compliancy practices when you've got 14 of
0: them talked a lot about that, including Scott McNeely, who has, has his opinions on it, but I, I, I actually welcome a federal law as a brand marketer. It just makes me easy. If, if I've got one battle to fight, you know, rather than 50 uh, I'm, I can do that. So uh, I want to pivot into brand safety in a little bit and and I'll kick this off. You've, you've authored, obviously the, defining finding brand safety series, which is a white paper that all of our listeners can get. It's going to be right on our website, cheetah Um, but I want to kick into this. You have a lot of things around brand safety, but I want to start with ad fraud. And my question is, just kind of came to me, if publishers have first-party data, and if a brand has first-party data, and we can make that one-to-one match, and a brand can now take their you know suitcase of data to all the publishers they want to advertise with, have the right audiences, does that diminish ad fraud because it's a one-to-one? You know, The brands have to hit scale, and the publishers have to have scale of how many targetable individuals. And you know, what do we know about them? Can we give Tim the, the right ad and, and Jane Doe the, a different ad? But does that reduce the ad fraud that's happening right now in the marketplace, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, It will reduce the ad fraud, and I'll tell you a number of reasons why. But it won't eliminate ad fraud. So in the brand, you know, over the last five, six years when we created the Trustworthy Accountability Group and and Ivy Tech Lab, you know, it was my responsibility to figure out how to develop solutions around anti-fraud initiatives. And one of those in the the Trustworthy Accountability Group uh, at the time uh, that made its way into the Brand Safety Institute, a lot of different acronyms and orgs I'll talk about and and help define for your audience this year, um, was know your partner, okay? So, in third-party transactions of data, you have a lot of obfuscation and in intermediaries, especially in open-web type uh, programmatic auctions, and that allowed criminals, and still does, to hide, okay? And when you think about now, first-party data, that obfuscation and the amount of intermediaries sitting in the middle uh, lessens, so it does become... Uh, um, relevant that the brand marketer needs to know then who they're working with when it comes to the first-party data, just as they did in the third-party data transaction, but also in the first-party data, which just means that because it's first-party data, the amount of intermediaries, if any, uh, becomes less. But that doesn't mean it's all fraud-free. So what the Brand Safety Institute was designed to do 18 months ago when when Mike Zanis stood it up, Um, is that I came in and I wrote a series of white papers to help support the Brand Safety Institute, which is an examination for brand marketers and buyers so they know how to buy effectively around brand safety issues such as fraud. And one of the things I think we'll find in, in my interviews through those series of white papers was that once you could figure out who you're doing business with you probably have your own company policy to say that okay this company that we're gonna do business with or this publisher is a uh, uh, registered with yeah I'm making this stuff but the state of California um uh, um, Attorney General, possibly it could, they have a federal tax ID. You know this is a reputable business. They, um, you know, they're registered with a, a tag ID. You know, so know thy partner becomes a big part of how to eliminate fraud. Okay, but but it is up to the practitioner of that buyer. There's no tool out there. There's no there's no uh, anti fraud tool that's gonna you know basically use it as a blunt instrument to solve all your fraud problems. It doesn't exist. The best way to solve fraud problems is to be the best practitioner of buying that you possibly can and know who your partner is, know what channel you're buying, and most importantly, uh, obviously understand what campaign metrics you want to get. Because certain campaign metrics clearly are going to be, you know, if you want massive scale, but you, you know, all you need is brand lift with massive scale. You know, there could be some crap in there, some garbage in there. You don't want to go down that route, right? And so these are all best practices that I think buyers can do. And now with first-party data, uh, it changes it. But keep in mind, where there's money, there's crime.
0: What else should they be worrying about? You know, you talked – the elections are going on right now, and advertisers and brand safety around what's happening with election advertising and, 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 and this and that. You have a, You have a perspective. You have any advice for larger brands that might be getting wrapped into some of this misinformation versus – you know, disinformation?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's really two topics now that are part of 2020. Uh, one was the, the elections and campaign, the other one's coronavirus, and and two pose very unique challenges uh, to the brand marketer, and frankly, the publisher. So it, from a campaign 2020 perspective, if I'm a brand marketer, do I want to be advertising where there's co- certain content adjacency elements uh, or what I'll call uh, from a pre-roll video, right? Content adjacency is also based on not just display add but video pre-roll uh, as well. So as a brand marketer, do I want to be associated with certain political elements and certain campaign elements? And do I know that my ads are going to reputable news or other political sources. You know, right now, um, you know, everyone kind of knows that you don't want to be called out by Sleeping Giants to have your ads uh, a part of disinformation websites uh, out there. You know, that's kind of the name and shame game uh, that, that Sleeping Giants done. done. It's, it's been somewhat effective. But if you're a brand marketer, again, this is about, you know, knowing who you're partnering with, how you're buying understanding that where your ads are going. If I'm a publisher, hmm, a little bit different of a conversation because we know that the social platforms are ripe for abuse. There is very little control structure uh in place for them to neutralize all political advertising. Unless you're at Twitter says no political advertising, right? But, you know, as a brand marketer and publisher, you have to be careful. What's the agenda of the advertising? If it's programmatic, if you're a demand side platform, do you know who's occupying that seed ID? Do you know what entity is buying on that ID? Do you know on a social platform who is buying that? And so right now you have a real problem that we've seen since 2016, have we really solved this problem? I'd argue that, you know, yes, we're aware of it. We have our best people on it, but we haven't solved the problem, uh, you know, from the social platforms perspective. And if I'm a, and, and here's the value I would find if I'm a brand marketer and traditional publishers, especially news publishers and or entertainment publishers is their vetting process of who actually can buy is a lot more sophisticated and secure because they have such direct, uh, relationships over the years, whereas social platforms, it's a lot of it, a lot of it self-serve, right? So, you know, I, I do think that these are the things we need to watch out for. Who is buying? If I'm a publisher, who is buying? If I'm a brand marketer, I might be asking those publishers that I'm trying to buy onto those channels, you know, what's your control structure to know that I'm actually a legitimate buyer? It's kind of like, you know, uh, you walking into a liquor store and getting carted. You're like, wow, I didn't think about that. But thank you. I know now that 16-year-olds can't buy here. Well, if I'm a brand marketer, I'm going to say, well, how do I know that my ad isn't going to be associated with some other ad that is full of disinformation into itself, let alone the content that's going down? So as a brand marketer, you don't want to be a part of that. So this really comes about education and and learning how to, to buy effectively. That's where I see campaign 2020 going, and I think that the trade bodies and and um, uh, over the course of the rest of this year, will be will be um, very educational for them, and I hope that uh, they're they're you know uh, sharpening their tools a little bit in the toolbox, including the practitioners around that. That's a little different from what we're seeing now with the coronavirus, which doesn't seem to be um, abating uh, clearly. We all have been impacted by this. We know that marketing is shifting. We know that audiences' eyeballs are shifting. Um, you know, and and audiences' eyeballs are shifting to news information, whether it's national news, but a lot of it's local news. If you think about local news, whether it's newspapers or local television stations, they are the funnel and conduit for public health information. And what I, what we're all seeing and witnessing, and, and it's been written about now, and coming from the news industry, I can see that yes, paywalls are dropping. I do think that local news publishers should be keeping registration walls up you know, I do, I love the fact that they're making this content for free. I think it's the right thing to do in journalism in the name of civic good. Um, I do think that they should take advantage of the opportunity, not, not, not throw the entire curtain down, but capture that consumer information. So they do own that first party data, which will become valuable to them right now, um, more than ever, but most importantly, and, and, I've been asked about this, uh, you know, through some of the, the articles that have been reported out there of, you know, what does keyword blocking mean? What is really happening with keyword blocking around coronavirus and, and, and brand marketers and buyers have to keep in mind that, you know, if you say the term coronavirus and you say, this is something that I want to be blocked, it could be a sports story about some, some NFL league that's been punted by a, a month or the European premier league or you know, U.S. soccer has now canceled games. And that term there will, will not allow you in that block list then to have any ad spend across audiences that you might covet, let alone local news sources, which desperately need to add revenue right now. If they are lowering their paywalls, but putting up registration walls, that means their content is free. That means expense goes out the door. And right now, more than ever, We don't want local newsrooms not being able to afford to pay their journalists who are doing this as a a public good. So my, my advice and my encouragement, my hope would be brand marketers recognize this, Become more sophisticated with your whitelisting versus just using a keyword block list with a blunt instrument tool such as those verification vendors, you know, Double Verify, IS. These are all great companies, but sometimes those tools and those algorithms can be used as a blunt instrument. And what I would recommend marketers do is get engaged in your whitelist cultivation, ask to buy local news sources Obviously, you create your brand suitability framework around the type of content you're looking to 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 be associated with. But I can tell you, those news publishers really need your ads.
0: What's your opinion here on on the intermeri- intermediaries, the agencies placing these buys? Right, um, as we see less black boxes and less you know third party data that they can offer to their customers. You know, more matching on based on cookies. Do you think that the agencies are going to have to change their skill set to say, all right, cool, now we're really going to get into the weeds, we're going to help our clients with whitelisting versus keyword blocking and these more minutiae granular, you know, targeting abilities, is that where agencies are actually going to move their services and, and go back to school, so to speak?
1: You know, we are. We work in the Brand Safety Institute. We do have the large holding companies engaged in this, and and a lot of them are moving towards a brand suitability framework, recognizing it's not one-size-fits-all. Certain brands are fine with the association. Certain brands... Um, Clearly, you know, think about the buying channels. The airline industry and the the cruise industry are struggling right now. Um, You know, having ads targeted next to coronavirus stories is probably not the best idea for them. You know, I'll leave it to the marketing department. But as a as an agency, you're sitting with your clients trying to understand the best brand suitability for that individual client. Now, I do think that uh, some agencies are better than others. I think that some marketers are better than others. And my advice would be for the marketers is you know shame on you if you don't ask the right questions there's a lot of good information out there but there it's also upon you to work with your agency buying partner to create that brand suitability strategy otherwise the agency sometimes are like well okay this is what i heard this is what i heard okay i'll push this button boom yeah. okay. you know and and so it, it is a dynamic there that, that requires a healthy dialogue between the agency who really needs their guidance on their brand suitability comfort
0: one other thing, OTT. Um, you may or may not be the expert here, but you certainly know more than me, and I'm very interested. I believe this shift to first party data, and with guys like Mark Pritchard, and PNG saying, "Hey, we're going to collect as much first party as possible." We already have 1.3 billion records. We want to have 10 billion, you know, in the next year or so. Um, when it comes to OTT, addressable TV, you know, that closed loop. Um, do you think that's going to be a real one-to-one match? Do you, you think that the ability to reach people and the revenue that brands will put into OTT as these you know, smart TVs you know, proliferate, especially in North America, do you think that's going to be an upswing? Do you think that's a real you know, windfall for the OTT market?
1: I, you know, I do, especially obviously around CTV. There's a lot of terminology that- and go
0: ahead, go ahead and, and go ahead and give me the layman's terms that, you know, so we're clear on what we're talking about. So you
1: know, the way the industry has kind of approached ATT is really you know, uh, desktop video, mobile video, um, CTV video, video that is outside the traditional linear television. That's kind of the blanket term for OTT. We've ran into this problem. Uh, so think of OTT as the way people describe programmatic it's a blanket term for a lot of things around, you know, video and distribution. CTV is where really the, the game is played with the streaming wars. And if you think about that, you think about some of the scale challenges, you know, I actually think that some of the scale challenges, what you're seeing now is that, um, you know, these, these, these co-op type orgs, like Project Or, you know, the banding together of multiple publishers for first-party data relationship is, is their attempt to create scale. We've seen this happen in the World Wide Web, and they're doing it to compete with the large platforms, right? And you know, I don't know if brand marketers are going to be satisfied with the stitching of these entities and their co-ops to create that type of scale. I just don't know if they're gonna satisfy those expectations. What I would like to see though, is the acknowledgement that uh, the harmony of a standards layer, which standards take time, the harmony of a measurement standards layer across multiple CTV mobile web uh, needs to take that next turn so that marketers do feel that there are scale and their are for video across OTT and, and CTV. Uh, at the same time, I think that there needs to be a little bit of recognition, too, on the marketer side that um, quality is oftentimes more important than quantity. And, and right now when you've got entities bolting together first party data, the quality can be synthesized and lost a little bit in the noise of that type of relationship without the standard. So I think brand marketers gotta be real careful too to understand that, that they should be looking for quality, maybe not as much quantity. And there's a lot of quality there. We're seeing more and more of it uh, in some of these individualized streaming war type uh, CTV channels now. Um, you know, having said all that, Standards take some time. And the other thing that, that, that brand marketers need to understand on the standard side is when you buy around CTV uh, in principle, there's this new term that maybe folks have heard about, another acronym called SSAI. What that means is server side ad insertion. So the dynamic of the ad. As it goes to the TV and of itself to create your addressability so you get more first party data, it goes from a server to another uh, machine. And right now, there's a little bit of a measurement gap because we don't have a good standard in place in the market, meaning it's what we call a measure what I call a measurement blind spot. so if if a lot of these ads are going from server to server type transactions, if you think about Nielsen, and and your brand marketers who buy on Nielsen and and panel that's a client side measurement that we've known since the sixties. Well, technology is updated so much that it's now a server integration. And right now we don't have a good standards layer uh, across multiple buying channels to say that server to server has have a measurement of X right now. We don't know what that measurement is. That's what we call a measurement blind spot, but the MRC is aware they're working on this. The IB is working on this. But if I'm a brand marketer and I'm buying on these channels, again, you're only as good as your knowledge of what's happening in the market. And so this is kind of up to you as a brand marketer or you know your agency to say, if I'm going to buy on CTV channels, what percentage of measurement blind spot am I really buying at this point? How do I know that my ad was delivered there? These are all very valid questions uh, that are part of their brand safety framework that I would argue that they need to be up to speed on.
2: Scott, so one of the things that you know we talk about with our customers is, is different ways that they can build out their first-party database, how they can aggregate all their first-party data across lots of different channels, and apply machine learning and make sense of it, and look for opportunities for personalised messaging or advertising. Could you, um, you know, it, 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 so step through in kind of layman's terms what you think the benefits of a brand bringing first-party data to an OTT ad landscape may be? now and in the future?
1: Well, it's a great question because um, on the CTV front in particular, you do have a lot of the streaming players and device manufacturers who do control the publishing side of first party data. So the more the brand marketers are are, uh, culling and mining their first party data in their own data stores, the better opportunity they're going to have for addressability in the future. And obviously, there's a refresh rate on keeping that. But if they're not putting that investment into creating that first-party data stack, maintaining that, refreshing that first-party data stack, every time they go to a CTV buy or other maybe potentially other OTT such as mobile video, um, they might be blind buying blind, right? What you want them and what they want is the ability to connect to these customers and audiences that they may already have, outside of reaching new new audiences, so the investment they make into their own data stack and data stores, in order for them to mine that data when they go to these buys, they're only going to find that the 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 the, the more relevant and frankly the more leveraged their campaign uh, uh, will will act on in the future.
0: I'm glad you said that because the refresh rate—that's the key word to me. Like. I think brands, if they don't understand that they need to build their first party you know, database right now, then I don't, I don't know what rock they're, they're operating under. They need it. Um, but the refresh rate is something that's interesting because there's progressive profiling on people, right? Every time you get a touch point with a consumer, you can get X amount of data, name, email, et cetera, maybe a psychographic point. But the more that they can understand that individual consumer, the, the wider their database gets, right? Deep is one thing. Hey, we have Mark Pitcher said 1.3 billion contacts. What I'd really love to know, which he probably won't reveal, is how much do you know about them? How wide does the database go per person? But having an always on approach from a brand standpoint to always be acquiring new and always be new people and always be acquiring new information on your people, that's what they need to do. That's how the hockey stick keeps going. That's where their strength comes from. That's where their, you know, knowledge power is going to be. And the publishers have to do the same thing on their end, right? So now we can say, hey, look, do you have anybody in your first party database that loves blue hair? You know, whatever it is, like if the publishers have it and the, and the brands have it, they can make that match much like, the cookies doing right now for the duopoly and, and all the other publishers. So well,
1: you bring up, you bring up the, the point around, um, you know, the variables in that first party framework that I'm, and I'm visualizing what my data set of Scott Cunningham looks like and those variables that might be interested in blue hair dye or whatever. My kids could be, I, you know, in my email address, the question becomes also for the brand marketers and publishers is, you know, in a world of regulatory compliance, you're going to need to, uh, uh, explain to the consumer why this information is appropriate and the better you're at it doing that and packaging that information the more rich your data store is going to be and if marketers are not putting the potential fiscal and uh, uh, other labor resources around this type of capability now they will be left behind it's time for them to start thinking in these terms because what will happen is Is that if the publishers do have this data, then the brand marketer doesn't have that data or it's not it's not mind appropriate in all the appropriate variables are captured. It might be that their advertising campaign falls a little flat, right? If you think about that down the road, they're trying to advertise these people. If they don't have the right data set to match this data set over here, then that ad, you might see some ad spend waste at that point.
0: That's interesting. Maybe we need a standardized list of psychographic zero party data, you know, variables that publishers and brands should be asking so that there is more match beyond just the email address and the person. Although, I think it's, you know, we have clients, uh, and I personally have a client that has 187 data points in their data, database for nearly a million people. I mean, they know when they're going to buy, what they're going to buy, why they buy, why they bought the competition, what channel they're going to buy in, in a big box retailer, a local dealership, or et cetera. Um, and they can segment and create their own, you know, segments. And right now, it's pretty good to have, hey, these email addresses we know buy in this channel at this time with this product. Hey publisher, can you reach these people? Um, and then it just becomes the match rate. The match rate becomes the the gold standard of of everything. Well, th- this has been great, fellas. Do we have Do we have anything else we want to close out on here? I think we have a ton of things we could dive into later. I want to get some feedback from some of our audience, or clients, or prospects, uh, and and reexplore
2: things. But any closing thoughts? It's quite. You know, it's quite often you, you see a situation like um, what we're having now with uh, coronavirus, and it's. You know, easy to think that it's a lose-lose situation, but of course, it, it, things are more nuanced than that, and and it's not a lose-lose. Some folks are able to um, uh, adapt and actually, perhaps, um, uh, optimize and, and 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 potentially win out of the changes that are happening in society during this this period. Just just quickly, do you, what do you you think are maybe the the spots of winners and losers in the brand and publishing ecosystem. You mentioned local news, for example. Just give us a view on that before we wrap up.
1: I look at these situations, obviously, as an opportunity, too. I know how painful it is for, for a lot of folks that go through this. But advertising in and of itself and the supply of content and information, whether it's in the form of entertainment or news, Both have equal value in many respects to help us through these these times right now. Um, Advertising plays a massive role in the economic sustainability of these things. And so there's going to be certain brand marketers clearly that are going to shy away from this. Um, I do worry that because of the way things have gone with Um, Some of the isolation and social distancing, which has been really important, clearly, that our small, medium-sized businesses that do advertise on local news channels, which is the conduit by which they've reached their audience traditionally they don't have marketing budgets anymore. These bars and restaurants, they're laying people off, let alone trying to market people who can't come in those doors. So those local news entities need that pipeline of brand lift coming through. So I I would urge the audiences who have larger budgets and marketing budgets to keep trying to reach those audiences because they're there. I do think that some of the other winners clearly are going to be, uh, the CTVs obviously streaming, uh, appliances at this point, you know, clearly, you know, what we're seeing. And I read somewhere that the European union was going to ask Netflix to not send HD video anymore because it's taxing their broadband infrastructure uh, around it. Um, you know, those types of situations, um, also create, um, exposed problems and opportunity. I think that uh, clearly that we've seen that there is an element of the digital divide. There is an element of our society of consumers who just view content on mobile phones because they don't have broadband type of connectivity. And I think that's actually an opportunity too because I think you'll find that the private sector, we're all, we all work in, will realize that how do we better fund and upgrade some of the infrastructure for consumption education and the other types of technological capabilities that some of many of us enjoy, but not everybody do enjoy. So if you think about the bigger picture scenarios, I think what's happening is it, it's creating a lot more awareness of some of these massive gaps that we're finding in the ability to reach consumers, whether it's it's through uh, lack of technological means or uh, other types of, of, of environments that did, Previously, I've never had access to, um, but I think in the next three months, you know, the more that we can see sustainable advertising from those who are still in the marketing business to entertainment and news platforms, um, we'll we'll find that there's going to be a sustainability economic engine around marketing and advertising, and it's it, that doesn't go away. I just think that right now. A lot of the publishers and a lot of the, the providers who are removing their type of payment registration laws in the name of public good. I hope the brand marketers are helping step up to that and helping fund some of that type of content.
2: Yeah, hundred percent agree. I think that's a, a really um, uh, salient point there. You know, there's a lot of brand marketers that will be exposed to to this content, and um, you know, I live in Denver. I've been looking at the local news as a source of what's happening here now, and I think we do have a responsibility. You know, Facebook and, and Google aren't going away anytime soon. So apportioning some of that budget through to, to local news in this time of crisis, given the, the lack of advertising coming through from smaller businesses, makes complete sense in a good practical way that, uh, that I think marketers can help. I also think they, with the local... News organizations, they can also help uh, build out their first party databases, yeah. which is something they need for the long term. So it's a win win for everybody by yeah. moving some of those dollars from the duopoly to, to local news in this time of crisis. Well, yeah. and, and but
0: thankfully, if you're in local news, it's an election year. So you got that going for you. And let's not, let's not cry totally for local news here because that is a ginormous pile of cash that is floating straight down. To the to the bottom of the of the news funnel
2: in the U.S. Uh, are uh, are oh, okay? Uh,
0: All right, you got me there. Okay.
1: Well, no, no, you bring up a good point. There's there's certain events though, like the Olympics. You know, those could be uh, you know a lot of local news, especially NBC affiliates. You know, take advantage of those things. And being a, a Colorado and myself, you know, there's three thousand Denver posts out there, and and across the United States that definitely need some of these brand dollars distributed. Uh, Accordingly, So, yes, there's going to be some campaign dollars flowing through, but I don't know if that's going to be enough, honestly, to offset all the bars and and restaurants that do traditionally advertise. So this is a this is a shift. This is a massive shift. And we'll see how long that shift uh, lasts, hopefully not too long. But, you know, I think right now is a a great opportunity to reevaluate where those brand dollars are spent.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. Well, guys, this has been great. Scott, we all live probably within a mile of each other, but we're all social distancing. So, when the social distancing quarantine is lifted, we'll all have a pint and uh, continue the conversation. I appreciate Scott coming on today. Again, we have his white paper on our blog. You can go get that at Cheetah Digital. Scott, where can they also get that white paper if they want to follow you? Or if a brand needs compliance services or brand safety consultancy, how can they reach you?
1: Yeah, so my my website is cunningham.tech. Um, you know, it's a little consultancy shop that deals a lot of brand safety uh, compliance, uh, different strategic opportunities around supply chain, um, and obviously the Brand Safety Institute. You know, it has uh, the exam uh, posted for all brand sa- to, for folks to become brand safety officers uh, and how to buy smartly and know what uh, challenges are out there. And so I encourage uh, folks to go to both of those websites, Cunningham and Brand Safety Institute.
0: Great, and you have some really, really large name clients. I'm not going to name right here, but. Um, Scott, you're the real deal. Appreciate you coming on. We'll have you on again. Fellas, wash your hands.